We've been going through Behold the Lamb, this, this series called Behold the Lamb of God, which is based on music written by Andrew Peterson, and it's been interesting for me to see where the Lord has taken this series, and I've, I've found that it's just brought us to some very simple ideas that are taught in, in the, the birth stories of, birth story of Jesus. We've looked at the background, the Old Testament background um, that Jesus fulfilled, this desire and longing to be delivered from brokenness. We've looked at the poverty of Jesus. We've looked at the humility of Jesus. And today we look at simply the peace which Jesus promises in his coming. Peace is a, a very full, profound, important word. I um, have a, my oldest child is in that pre-adolescent phase, so I'm beginning to see him lose his childhood peace and begin to wrestle internally in those years and reminds me of my teenage years and how uh, full of turmoil my internal life was. We're longing for peace. I mean, so often we're looking left and right, far and wide for it. My, my hometown of Hong Kong the last six months has definitely seen a lack of peace. And I've been surprised myself to see how much turmoil's brought me from afar to see uh, just this constant state of unrest in Hong Kong. And I think what hurts my heart maybe more than anything else to see people so divided in such polar extremes as they can't even really have conversation. Um, and resorting to violence uh, really, again, without even being able to dialogue about what, what is the reality of the situation, what are the, what are the things that are being fought for. And right, Hong Kong is not the only place in the world with unrest. There's unrest going on all over the world. And we think about our own country in the midst of in, impeachment inquiries. And again, two sides so polarized, seemingly unable to hear each other, unable to dialogue. We feel that lack of peace right here um, in America as well. And we come to this passage where we hear these words of God saying, to us that he comes to bring peace. And so we're going to just look at this main point today from this passage, which is Jesus comes to bring peace, believe in and share the good news of the Prince of Peace. Jesus comes to bring peace, believe in and share the good news of the Prince of Peace. We have this well-known story of these shepherds hanging out in the fields at night, just tending to their sheep. And an angel comes before them, and we're told that the, the, the shepherds are fearful because an angel has appeared before them. And the angel says amidst great glory, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What incredible words for these shepherds to hear. Uh, The shepherds were no doubt scared by this spectacle, but what followed from this one angel appearing in glory was then a host of angels, an army of angels coming right in his footsteps. And to then say, in praise to God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The shepherds heard that there was going to be this baby born nearby in a manger, that this baby would be, as it says in this text, Savior, Messiah, and Lord, that he would be the, the, the one who would deliver Israel, that he be the one who is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, that he would be the one who was Lord and master of all. And yet this was not news of oppression, but news of deliverance, news of freedom, news of peace, good news of great joy. And I wanted to focus just on these 
this, this, these words that the angel sang, these auspicious words, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, it's just kind of funny to put yourself in the shoes of the shepherds. It's a good thing that uh, God sent one angel first because you can imagine if you're just hanging out in the field tending to your sheep and an army of angels comes blaring this message, glory to God in the highest, you'd probably just literally faint and you wouldn't hear another word afterwards. And so the question we have to ask, I mean, I think the message is, is again, it's just Jesus comes to bring peace. But what is this peace that Jesus brings? So a little bit of background on this word peace. The Greek word for peace is arene. And in classical Greek, it, it, it does tend to mean absence of conflict or, or the opposite of war. And so it's, it is much like how we use the word peace in English. But when we look at scripture and the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint from a long time ago, it, it is the word irene is used to translate the Hebrew word shalom. And the Hebrew word shalom does mean peace, but it can also mean well-being, prosperity, flourishing, completeness, wholeness, harmony, tranquility, security, welfare. It has a very broad meaning, much broader than either the Greek, classical Greek or the English meaning for peace of just absence of conflict. And so we see in the New Testament anyway that as this word erene is used to describe peace, it takes on much more the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom, a much broader meaning, taking on meanings of well-being, wholeness, completeness, inner satisfaction, uh, contentment, serenity, all of these kinds of words that we, we also can understand peace to mean in English as well, this life to the full that comes through peace. And in the New Testament, we hear also that God is the God of peace, as it says in Romans 15, 22, who brings the gospel of peace, which says in Ephesians 6, 15, and that this gospel of peace is brought about through Jesus Christ, the mediator of peace in Colossians 1, 20. So these uses of peace in the New Testament fits, again, much better with this broader meaning of peace, of this idea of shalom and wholeness and harmony and contentment. Peace is also described in the New Testament as a part of the whole armor of God that the, the Christian is to, to wear to withstand the attacks of the enemy. And in peace is also one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is meant to fill and grow in the believer through uh, their life. And so we hear, again, we come back to this verse, this Gloria verse of what was sung by the angels, uh, that this peace is not just absence of conflict. So this peace that the angels sing about is this full dimension that comes with the fulfillment of these messianic expectations that Israel had, but even broader than what they could imagine and what they expected. For us as Christians, we, we also understand peace to be a part of our, our, our hope, our eschatological hope, our end time hope of what God will bring in the next life, this peace that we hope for and long for. So again, we have to ask, so what is this peace that is promised by God here through Christ? Christ comes to bring, again, that fullness of peace, but at the same time, that peace must begin with peace with God. And so when we look at this verse, we see emphasize this idea of peace with God, peace with God as in reconciliation with God, that scripture teaches us that we're born into this world at odds with God, 
born into this world with a rebellious nature, not by nature wanting to be at peace with God and to seek God and to obey God, that it takes the supernatural work of God to bring us to the point of being reconciled to him. And that this peace with God is not just reconciliation, which you could say is in some sense external to us, a work that God is doing between us and him that of course brings about um, implications in, in what we feel and think. But in scripture, the peace of God and this peace with God also comes with it a reassurance of that reconciliation. This may not seem like a big deal, but if you have at any point in your life doubted your relationship with God, doubted your salvation, this reassurance that is promised by God in Scripture is an important thing. God says that peace with God comes with a reassurance. And if we compare to other religions, we see that other religions, again, if it is focused on doing good so that you can be made right with God, it doesn't always come with it a reassurance of being at peace with God, being right with God. But let's set that aside for a moment. We've kind of talked about this biblical background for peace. What is this peace that the, the angel sang about and promised to not only the shepherds, but to all those who would hear um, the shepherd pass along this message? Let's talk about what the world thinks of peace for a moment. You know, we can joke about the beauty pageant contestant who says, I want to bring world peace. You know, I want to strive for world peace. And I think we can see that all humans in one way or the other is hoping for peace, looking for peace, being a part of bringing about peace in this world. And, and Lord knows we need it. We need world peace. Perhaps you could say it, it, it is the, the, the emphasis of the work of activists, activists and politicians, or that we need relational peace, the focus of the work of, psychiat- uh, of counselors and mediators, or that we all look for personal peace, again, the focus of the work of psychiatrists and counselors, or that we all long for peace with God, whoever that God you may think is, the work of pastors, the work of spiritualists or religious people, the religious leaders. Peace is being sought in so many different ways. Vocations revolve around the seeking of this peace. If we think about these four different kinds of peace, world peace, relational peace, personal peace, and peace with God, I think often what we see is we tend to ignore relational peace because it's just too messy, and perhaps peace with God, we sometimes think it's unnecessary. So we can focus on, as humans, fighting for world peace, so we can focus on trying to find personal peace in whatever way we can, and yet again, peace with God and often in the world's eyes, seem like this unnecessary endeavor. And I think that's true for a couple of reasons. Sometimes peace with God can seem unnecessary to the world is because, one, people think there's no God. If there's no God, there's no need to find peace with God, right? And secondly, often people think that God already accepts us as we are. And that's even something Christians would say. God loves and accepts you as you are. So we have to ask, well, what does it mean to say that God loves and accepts us as we are? There is truth to the fact that God loves and accepts us as we are. The work of Jesus coming into this world as we celebrate in Christmas has already been done. It's not conditional upon us being good people. God's work on the cross has already been done. 
He has already paid for the price of our sins and brought justice in that sense. It is not dependent on us being good. But God loving and accepting us doesn't mean that he agrees with everything we do, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't require anything of us. And this often is this fallacy that we live in um, in the world today. We live under this fallacy that agreement equals acceptance. If you agree with someone, then the expectation is that they accept you. If you don't agree with, if someone doesn't agree with you, then it means they don't accept you. Now, even um, you think about parenting, you know, we can see just in very simple with any culture, with any parent, parents, I think in general, are trying to love and accept their kids for who they are. Trying. Okay, none of us do it perfectly. And generally trying to affirm and encourage them, and yet it doesn't take very long in parenting for you to begin to correct your children in some way. Because you see what they're doing is bringing harm to themselves. Even the parenting philosophies that really try to emphasize only affirmation, no correction, the natural instinct to say no kicks in because our children stick their fingers in electrical sockets and run into streets where cars are. And, you know, it's very difficult to be affirming when they're doing that. You just have to say, no, stop, you're going to kill yourself. And a child who grows up never hearing no is going to have a very difficult time in life. A child needs to learn how to receive a no so that they do not become spoilt or entitled. And a child must also learn to say no. In fact, developmentally, children themselves go through a phase to parents' chagrin far too early at around two years old where they begin to say no. And that's why it's called the terrible twos because up to that point, they're either a lump or they're fairly compliant and then at twos, they begin to learn to say no. And you're like, dang it, why are you not compliant anymore? Just do what I say. But a child needs to learn to say no so that they can have their own opinions, so that they can have boundaries. How will a child learn to say no if parents themselves don't model saying no? And so it's the same with grown-ups. Grown-ups must hear no in life. Grown-ups must hear no from God. There is a reason why the majority of the Ten Commandments are phrased in the negative sense. We need to know there are things to avoid just like children need to know that there are things to avoid. Grown-ups must also learn that disagreement doesn't mean non-acceptance. I love and accept many people who I don't agree with. You know, for God, God does love this world. And he doesn't agree with a lot of what we do. God is seeking to transform this world. And just because he disagrees with us doesn't mean he doesn't love us. And so when we come to this idea of God bringing peace to this world, we often think of God in one of two ways. God is either the doting grandfather who never disagrees with us and always spoils us, just love, 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 give, 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 everything that you want. Yes, 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 always yes. Or we think of God 
as the stern taskmaster who disagrees with everything we do and always thinks we don't do a good enough job. If you think of God as a doting grandfather, then the work of Jesus coming into this world is largely unnecessary. The work of Jesus coming to bring peace is largely unnecessary because God already agrees with everything we do. There's no peace that needs to be brought, theoretically. If we think of God as the stern taskmaster, then we do very much see and feel the need for God to bring peace through Jesus Christ. But the ironic thing is our, when our view of God becomes warped in that sense, then we can see our need for peace, and yet our view of God is so stern and so severe, we doubt whether Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection is, is enough sufficient to turn God's love towards us. We can be convinced that God is always disapproving of us and fail to see the beauty of Christ's incarnation into this world for our sake, his death on the cross for our sake, his resurrection from the dead for our sake. God is neither a doting grandfather nor stern taskmaster. He is the God of love and justice. In his, in his justice, God disagrees with us, shows us what is sin, and shows us how um, that sin comes between us and God. And in his love, God makes a way for us to be restored to God through Jesus, who was the sacrificial lamb for us, who took the penalty for all of our sins. We all long for peace flourishing, wholeness. We see people who don't have faith seeking that flourishing and peace from all kinds of things. And even for us as Christians, we can say we believe in the Prince of Peace and yet still turn to so many other things to find that peace instead of finding it in God. And yet this passage tells us Jesus is coming into this world was to come to bring peace. Yes, peace in the fullest sense of the word, and that that paints this picture of the work that God is doing ultimately in this world, but that it must begin with peace with God, reconciliation with God, and a reassurance of that reconciliation we have with God. This second part of this, these words that the angel said to the shepherds It's a bit tricky, but it does point us to this truth that we are to believe in and share the good news of the Prince of Peace. It's interesting because if you have been listening to Behold the Lamb of God this Christmas season, as we told you to, anyway, uh, Andrew Peterson takes a translation of this this little passage, and he does take the translation, uh, which you could read in, for instance, New King James Version. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth comma, goodwill towards men. So you might remember listening to it, this is what he sings, and it's, again, taken from a particular translation. If we take that translation, then we might say, okay, what what does this mean? To whom is this peace promised then? Is this then peace for everyone, regardless of what they believe? Is this just a general indication that Jesus has come to bring peace to this world and and, and goodwill to humans? Is it kind of like an alien arriving on earth and saying, I come in peace? Or perhaps 
a very different, seemingly a very different translation, the one we just read today in ESV, English Standard Version. It says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Okay, that seems quite different, doesn't it? The first one said, on earth peace, comma, goodwill towards men. The second version, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Now, the ESV is in agreement with really many of the translations you probably read, NIV, NRSV, uh, NLT, um, other ones like it that are very common for us to read, and seems to indicate of this pointing to the peace that God promises is to those with whom God is pleased. The peace is for those among those whom he is pleased. Now, I don't know, depending on what your, your doctrine is, what your theology is, you might have things, uh, red flags going up right now or dings going off in your head, like, what, okay, what does this mean? Um, I'm not going to go into the Greek right now, but let me say this. Whether you have an Arminian view of God's work in salvation or a Calvinistic view of salvation, both of these views agree with the ESV translation, which is the peace that God promises is a peace that comes through a special grace that God gives to those who have faith in God. It is not a peace that is promised to everyone. Regardless of the New King James Version translation where it says, on earth peace, goodwill towards men, which is a bit vague in its meaning anyway, we see that the reason why, again, a majority of translations that we read go with this uh, translation, it's because it fits. I mean, all translators fit it with their understanding of Scripture. It fits with God's revelation in the rest of Scripture, how he talks about the work of God, how he talks about salvation, how he talks about to whom this peace is promised. Now, this special grace, again, of God is available to all, but Scripture does talk about it, that only some will experience that special grace, that peace. Now, the debates about predestination and the elect try to wrestle with how is it that it ends up certain people believe and receive the special grace and have this peace and others don't. And I, I love to joke with other Christians who don't agree with me that every, every Christian believes in predestination because you have to, because it's in the Bible. And so the question is, what do you believe it to mean? You can't just say, ah, those four passages with the word predestination, I'm going to cross those ones out. I don't like them. And I remember, I remember when I first wrestled with this idea of predestination in my life as a Christian, my, my understanding of it was this, was that God has given all of us free will and that God could see ahead and, and, and in his all-knowingness saw that there were particular people in their free will who would come to believe in God, choose to believe in God, and those are the ones that he predestined. And, and I think this is, actually, this, is, this, is, this is a view that many hold and is kind of a category of, of those who define predestination in that way. That was not something that I thought out well. It was just what I happened to believe in as a young Christian. And when I wrestled with that understanding and looked at Scripture and how 
you know, it matches up with how God talks about predestination, the elect, the chosen. I realize that my former way of defining predestination doesn't really resolve the objection I had against God of choosing some and not others. Because the problem with that thinking was, okay, God created everyone, and so why did he create some with free will that would choose God and others with free will that don't choose God? Isn't God, in the end, the ones who make each and every one of us? It didn't seem to make sense to me. Today's sermon is not on predestination. I encourage you to wrestle with it because it's in Scripture, and I think it's important to wrestle with Scripture, the things that we don't like particularly. And I will say, as I wrestled with this theology of predestination, it deepened my love for God. It deepened my appreciation for the grace of God. And with regards to this passage, I don't know, maybe this is an easy out, but I honestly believe it. It it really doesn't matter whether you have an Arminian view or a Calvinistic view of, of, of how God saves. Because again, both views in the end say there are some who receive the special grace of God. And again, the question of predestination just answers how is it that some do and some don't? But it is the foundation of which the gospel is built, which is Christ came as light in the darkness. The world we live in is one where we are not naturally at peace with God, that it took the work of God through Jesus Christ for peace to be brought to us. So when we hear God promise peace on earth with whom God is pleased, the question we have to ask more than anything else is, do we really believe that we need peace with God? If we do, then we should consider seriously the gospel and Christ's work. We're kind of like, eh, no, not really. Well, then at least Christmas loses much more of its meaning, much more of its significance and bite. I love what the shepherds do, and it's a great encouragement to me. They're so filled with awe by this message of angels, which I assume most of us would be, but they go and search out this baby Messiah, and they go and worship them. They find this Jesus, and they worship Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. They don't just go worship Jesus and then go home. Wow, that was cool. So glad I got to worship baby Jesus. They worship Jesus. And then they went to tell everyone about what they heard, about what they saw, about what they experienced, and about who they worshipped. The first worshipers of Jesus were the first missionaries of Jesus. I'll just say this for those of you who have grown up in some kind of reformed background. Badly taught and understood predestination leaves believers taking for granted the love that God has for us and makes light of the need for Christians to go and share the gospel. Okay, so if you're from like 
hardcore reform background, have grown up in it. I just need you to hear that. Badly taught and understood predestination leaves you taking for granted the love God has for you, making light of the need for Christians to go out to share the gospel. And it's as simple as this. God may ordain the ends, but he also ordains the means. God may ordain the ends, but he also ordains the means. And that is maybe a complicated way to simply say the normal way for people to come to faith in Christ is through the witness of Christians. That is what God has ordained. God is not just zapping people left and right. He's saying the way I do it is I send Christians out and they share the gospel and that's how people come to faith. So we don't get to, if we are really big on predestination, we don't get to say, oh, God's predestined them, so it's, it's all good. I'm just going to sit at home. The first worshipers were the first missionaries. And we too are called out this Christmas and every day of the year to worship Jesus and to be on mission for Jesus, to share the beauty of the good news. If Christians will not go share the gospel of peace to people, then people will not come to know the Prince of Peace, who is the mediator between us and God. So I ask you these questions to think about as we're just a few days away from Christmas Day celebration, this last Sunday before Advent. Consider again, do you trust and rely upon Jesus as your source of peace? Do you appreciate the peace with God you have through Jesus? Do you respond in thankfulness for the reconciliation you have with God through the work of Jesus? Do you rejoice in a faith where God reassures you that you have peace with God? That you don't need to doubt your standing before him. Lastly, Will you follow the examples of the shepherds where your worship leads to you being on mission for Jesus? God has promised us peace, and he has made peace with us through Jesus and the gospel of peace. May we be a people of peace who brings hope to this world. Let's pray.